CUA is the voice of urology in Canada. Europedia Canada is your resource for education. Visit CUA.org. Hello, everyone, and uh, this is really um, very exciting to uh, to be part of the CUA webinar, especially having a close friend, uh, Eleni Stathew, who's accepted to uh, be our visiting professor for this program. Um, so uh, on behalf of the CUA, I welcome everyone in the, to this update in advanced prostate cancer. So just uh, a few words, um, the question and answers. Um, so if you have questions, just send them uh, onto the chat box uh, via the Q&A, and, and I'm gonna look at them regularly and we'll try to keep them for the end for some discussion, some questions. If there's anything really burning, I'll, I'll interrupt uh, Eleni, but she has a great story to tell um, in her in her presentation. And uh, uh, there is simultaneous interpretation in French. Uh, so to listen in French, click on the interpretation button uh, at the bottom of your screen. So this is an accredited learning activity, section one uh, with the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons and approved by the CUA. And you can claim a maximum of one hour of credit. And uh, we'd like to acknowledge the support uh, that was given uh, with uh, unconditional support from Amgen, AstraZeneca, Merck, Bayer, and, and Janssen. So the objectives um, really are, are quite wide. This is a huge area uh, where there's been a lot of practice, but really to review present and future therapeutic options. And, and uh, very few people are as well qualified as Eleni to talk about the future uh, and review strategies for rational sequencing of available therapeutic options and review clinical and biological parameters that, that help in treatment selection. So just as a very brief introduction, um, uh, you know, th there are guidelines, uh, Canada, I think we're proud of our guidelines, putting them together um, in, in what is appropriate for the different states of castration resistant disease. It's no longer a, 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 a simple state of the disease and, and the, the options are growing, uh, whether it's prior to metastatic disease, whether it's first line, second line, third line, and these guidelines have become more and more difficult uh, because um, uh, it really depends, the next line depends on what you got in the prior line. And so it becomes harder to create algorithms considering all the different choices you have in the different lines. And, and we have to continue to think of, of bone health in terms of um, being able to get these uh, multiple lines of therapy by ensuring that patients maintain adequate bone health so they don't uh, suffer from uh, events that preclude them from being well enough to get access to multiple lines of therapy, which, which seems to be the biggest um, predictor of how long patients are gonna live. Uh, and, and we have guidelines for metastatic castration sensitive disease, and these are becoming more and more complicated. And, and Eleni will touch on this, um, depending on volume of disease, um, the systemic therapy intensification is growing, and we're gonna hear more about the triplet therapies and even the, the importance of treating the prostate in the presence of metastatic disease. So really the field um, is becoming more and more complicated and we really do absolutely need to work together to make things uh, happen. And when I started uh, in 1992, uh, coming back from fellowship, things were really simple. You know, patients had uh, advanced disease, you gave them ADT and then you helped them along until they died. And that was basically it. Uh, and now uh, things are much more complicated, but so much better for patients with all the options that we have. But uh, we need people like Eleni to, to help make sense of all of these options and, and how to, uh, you know, that word personalizing care uh, has always been central to Eleni's reputation. And so just as a brief introduction um, uh, for those few who might not know uh, Eleni Stathew, she is um, a professor of medicine um, and now uh, head of genital urology at Houston Methodist Cancer Center, and also still keeps contact uh, with Athens Medical Center. And so uh, a close friend, and, and we've uh, seen this area grow together, and Eleni has been instrumental in pushing this field along. So Eleni, it's all yours. Thank you very much, Fred, and I'm very honored to be part of this series and the webinars, and, and, and of course, more so to have you chair and you are too kind. If anyone learns that it is I from you and um, 
not just from our discussions, but also your wonderful presentations through the years. And I want to point out that coming week, right after Valentine's, you're going to be front center everywhere with a presentation. We're all eager. I was trying, by the way, to get some info from you earlier, but it wouldn't work regarding uh, the great data we're expecting in an MCRPC with combinatorial strategies. And, you know, we, we were discussing this before preparing the presentation about the time limitation and the time we want to spend discussing with you and hearing your comments, those who, who actually joined after this long day of work and trying to give back to our patients. So I will try to keep it to about 40, 40 something minutes and then would like to hear Fred's uh, thoughts and your comments and, and ideas of how to move forward. So how are we faring? Are we there at the one prostate cancer patient at a time yet? Well, these are my disclosures, but let's go back to what Fred described as the depressing beginning and a little bit further back than that. You know, I think that there are people such as Dr. Huggins who have been the, the founding fathers, let's say, of therapy development across malignancies, let's always remember that, he did not just start and found the development of hormonal manipulation for prostate, but also for breast cancer. And we have to keep in mind his central belief that discovery is our business and the fact that he was a urologist who devoted himself to also basic science and that in his, in his words, science is not cold and I'm feeling in one scientific investigation, we become emotionally contained in the, in the problem. And the three ages of experimentation remain not just the head, but also the heart and the hand. And all are involved in creativity in the medical sciences. This combination enables us to recognize a solvable problem. It's sometimes good to revisit these founding principles of why we are doing what we are doing, why we spend the whole day trying to help our patients or devoted to clinical research or basic science or both. So let's look at the stage-wise drug and therapy development that we have achieved in prostate cancer. As was pointed out by Dr. Sad, we have been good about developing new agents in the past mere decade, I would say, and a little bit more. Let's say we with, with all of clinical development. But we still remain with very significant unmet needs that touch the lives of our patients, especially in the Western world, that especially include this localized high-risk disease. I think this will be the next step of our development if we were to look into the future. And we would agree that it is paramount that we get there and allow the opportunity for a bigger fraction of our patients to receive curative therapeutic strategies. So let's go a little bit in order to not go through each and every study to look at the therapy development that we have achieved through androgen signaling inhibition. The first principle back in 2006 that I was taught as I was finishing my GU fellowship at Anderson was like, don't even think that there is anything beyond medical castration. It was a time of androgen-independent prostate cancer. And of course, we believed that progression was endocrine-mediated. Right around 2009, the first clinical development that agents that actually proved true the hypothesis that there is further paracrine and intracrine progression of the disease beyond endocrine-mediated progression were coming into fruition. Still phase one, two trials with the agents we now use in our clinic and are actually generic here, such as abiraterone acetate. And by 2012 and all the way to today, we're still struggling with understanding which are the mechanisms of resistance that will allow us to target appropriately the tumor microenvironment so that we overcome the resistance that we eventually see, at least in more advanced disease, with the addition of enhanced androgen signaling inhibition. We have understood that beyond what is genomic progression driven by events such as 
P10 loss and other events. There's also the potential of non-genomic events such as, for instance, GR overexpression and others. In the meantime, we were able through phase three drug development to introduce in a very far late stage of the disease agents that I just mentioned, such as abiraterone and enzalutamide, but we were smart and quick enough to move forward quicker than probably in other disease settings. And I would say this has more merit to prostate cancer drug development, given that our patients thankfully usually live longer than in other aggressive malignancies. We were able to introduce early on in the clinic these agents, and I'm using the class of agents together to avoid any comparisons in efficacy or safety right now, which I think are not the point of our discussion. But then in the same spirit, drug development through industry found a little opportunity to actually take advantage of that space that is administratively, I would call the non-metastatic CRPC space and introduce further these agents and lead to the advancement and development of one more darolutamide that in fact, as a side story, may have a very favorable safety profile as well. So our progress report for all this decade and beyond has been that now we admit that androgen signaling inhibition of the newer generation, the enhanced flavor, is the prevailing therapeutic strategy in advanced prostate cancer. And I like using the term advanced prostate cancer rather than hormone-naive versus castrate-resistant, kind of reflecting the culture of breast cancer. And this is a discussion I'd like to hear thoughts from Dr. Saad from for the future. We have reproducible outcomes. We need to remember there are now 16 phase three trials using enhanced antigen signaling inhibitors that are all positive. This is a dream of statisticians to have so much reproducible data. We have understood that earlier is better and we are now understanding that more may be less because we know that the length of exposure leads to more potential side effects, cardiovascular and other that we're all more familiar with. And that importantly, we may have ways or avenues or agents, some of these were recently developed and approved that may limit these events. So we are still understanding that and actually progressing towards that transition from a drug development to a therapy development, we have found that this mechanism of action should be used earlier, and we are trying to personalize it to each and every patient through understanding that ratio of efficacy to risk. So the unmet needs, as I mentioned, we need to move earlier in the disease setting. We need to potentially identify the opportunity before it becomes metastatic, understanding very well a high-risk localized disease is potentially more enriched for a dynamically aggressive variant rather than that what we see in the garden variety oligometastatic recurring hormone-naive disease. This is another big discussion. But importantly, what we need is predictors of outcome to guide therapy selection. And mind you, I am not just referring to molecular predictors. I will get to that in a little bit. So what have we done from drug development and therapy strategy perspective? As, as you see on your left, we have done very well in enhanced androgen signaling inhibition to the point of some of us saying, why yet another androgen signaling inhibitor? Obviously, before they, because they work. And now we're at the point, as I mentioned, of looking not just at the efficacy, but also the ratio to the safety. When it comes to chemotherapy, we're lagging a bit behind, it is admitted, because within two decades, we've just been able to advance to another generation taxing that may be a little bit more efficacious, but has a little bit of also of a different safety profile. When it comes to immunotherapy, we are, we're not performing as well. We can have a discussion about Cepilocell T that was a one-off approval, one trial back before the approval of the enhanced allergen signal inhibitors. And in the minds of a lot of reviewers and discussants, this may be the actual reason that that 
phase three trial, if done today, might have been negative. However, it is an agent that is available and is used widely, at least in the United States. Pembrolizumab, I, I wrote it there with very, very small letters because it is a pan-cancer approach in the presence of MSI or high TMB, hence only applies for now to about 5% of our patient population in the far advanced disease setting, maybe 10 and the question here is what kind of combinations will improve the outcomes? These are ongoing events. And when it comes to radioligand agents, as you see, I've grayed out the lutetium PSMA, the biggest, sexiest event of this past year, because we're still waiting on an indication which is coming. And of course, we're all anticipating the transition to earlier disease setting, but should be mindful of expecting results from phase three trials. Radium-223, we still have not figured out exactly how this bone-specific targeting agent actually unlinks the host from the tumor and allows in that fashion to potentially delay disease progression and prolong overall survival. However, we know that it has been also found active in a phase three trial. But finally, I think the highlight of our discussion today should be targeted agents and precision therapy development from that aspect. We already have in the clinic Olaparib. Uh, it is in fast track that we will see Rucaparib. We are waiting, as I said, impatiently on my end to hear the already discussed as positive in the news announcement uh, data of Olaparib plus Abiraterone in earlier MCRPC. Hence, it is a very attractive story. And then finally, what has been the holy grail, and I think it's more important to hear from you urologists, is what are we doing when it comes to the treatment of primary in the presence of metastases? I think that the STAMPI trial, when it came to just taking a static snapshot of a bone scan, identify that there may be a niche, an opportunity in oligometastatic disease for treatment of the primary. But the bigger question is going to actually be, I think, what are we going to do in association to response to systemic therapy? Meaning we should not look at static events, but more a dynamic association between responsiveness to the systemic treatments and potential treatment of the primary to limit to minimize resistance to these systemic treatments. So a lot more to be learned. So let's fully, I think, all agree that therapy de development progress is subsequent to efficient drug development because all these phase three trials that are more about drug development actually inform us about the next step in therapeutic strategy development. So just to, to put it in perspective, there are so many variables when you're trying to develop therapy in a disease like prostate cancer that it, it is almost begging the introduction of AI in our lives, which is not yet to come for many, many reasons. But if you look, I put on the bottom on the left, the heterogeneity between tumors that has been well reported. The first one is from a Nature paper that dates from 2011 and suggest that that heterogeneity, even when you correct for tumor and patient's characteristics to almost looking identical is there at a genomic level. There's also temporal heterogeneity. This is from a snapshot from a paper from Wasima Bida from 2018, which has to do with the advent of more genomic events as the disease progresses from localized hormone naive to metastatic hormone naive to advanced CRPC and has been described by others. And of course, there's always that host. Uh, well, that has been described, I think, thousands of years ago. And, and of course, the Vitruvian man is the biggest representation, the uniqueness of that part. So think of the variables and think of the potential, potential different configurations that can lead to what should be a therapeutic strategy. And with that in mind, I'm coming to Bob. Uh, he is a person who has been a patient for a few years now. 
well, actually till last year, till I left MD Anderson. And it is an extreme but true case scenario. A man who was born in 1946, and I can really vouch for his biologic age not being in line with his chronologic age. A man with so much life in him and excitement and what we call joie de vivre that it would make my day just discussing with him his plans and what he does. He had a medical history of hypothyroidism, dyslipidemia, a little bit of metabolic syndrome. Yes, he, he's a bon viveur. He liked to enjoy his drinks, his alcohol, a cigar smoker, a typical Texan man. Actually went to the same class with, um, with the, one of our presidents, uh, George Bush. And he had a family history of his mother having breast cancer around her 50s. Back in 2007, so about 15 years ago, his PSA started rising and he decided to ignore it knowingly. Very sophisticated man who just did not want to take the risk of identifying something that would stop him from leading the life he loved. By 2012, PSA goes to 10.9 and I think the urologists who were following him at that point convinced him he has to do something about it. And indeed, the biopsy confirmed a high-risk disease by Gleason scoring and extensive disease by MRI imaging. There was conventional imaging done and he was fine to have high-risk localized disease. It was decided after discussion between him and his surgeons and radiation oncologists that he preferred to go upfront for radical prostatectomy. He underwent uh, the, the prostatectomy and it was locally extensive disease with positive margins and node positivity. There were two out of 28 positive nodes. I'm sorry, that 28 is missing there. At that point, of course, uh, quite, quite reasonably, uh, the physicians based on the missing data suggested that he starts Luprolite and when recovered from his surgery, underwent adjuvant radiation therapy to the lymph node basins and to the prostate resection bed. This is his PSA trend on the top and on the bottom, his testosterone. I did not see him until, of course, much later in the story, but you can see that the urologists who were following him uh, allowed his testosterone to recover, were following it very well. And you can see by looking at the two graphs that it took a while for his PSA to actually recur while he remained Ugonad for several years. At the time of recurrence, that was in 2017, about three years later, two of those with normal testosterone, he was provided the option for intermittent androgen deprivation and thus proceeded, which makes absolute sense, of course, based on the data that we have from Crook et al. from 10 years ago reported that this option, at least in what we know conventionally as non-metastatic hormone-naive disease is a valid option as compared to continuous androgen deprivation. And we know that the balancing act there is also between prostate cancer deaths and, of course, cardiovascular events when it comes to loss of life. So the patient comes to me about end of 2017 just asking for a second opinion regarding his treatment. If I go a little bit back, you will see that around the end of 2017, he had just initiated his last course of intermittent androgen deprivation, and it was actually now having his recovery of his testosterone here. But I met him right around here where PSA is almost undetectable and testosterone is just coming back. So right around 2018, you see that his uh, PSA goes up and it actually goes sharply up to almost eight with a normal testosterone. At that point in time, he is all about technology and he is really pushing hard to have a PET scan. But even when we did the conventional imaging, you can clearly
we see here bone scan that there is a finding in T12. And this was confirmed by anatomic imaging that there was a 2.5 by 3.6 centimeter lesion in T12 metastases. He insisted on having a PET CT fluciclovin that he actually paid out of pocket, and it confirmed again that he had that T12 metastases, did not have a finding in the sixth rib. Well, he wanted to actually pursue an understanding of what this disease was molecularly himself, and he proposed a bone biopsy. And this is interesting because Fred would know that I would be the first to propose it. Now, we both learned a lesson. You do not take a lot of benzodiazepines the night before you actually have such a procedure. And anesthesiologists are going to use propofol. And I needed to have told him over and over again because he likes his benzos. So um, he coded during the procedure, which traumatized him. So he suffered from a biopsy PTSD. And we can all smile because he recovered. But we did confirm that this was uh, bone metastasis, but of course we did not recover enough in order to sequence it. Given that we had, even by conventional criteria, the finding of metastases, and we did have an indication, we initiated abiraterone acetate plus, I used dexamethasone at a low dose, 0.5 milligrams, and we also added, of course, luprolide. He actually had, as you saw earlier, sorry, I'm trying to use the wrong way to progress my slides. He actually did have a very sharp decline of the PSA. He did not tolerate very well abiraterone and asked to go to 500 milligrams. And soon after that, he requested, if possible, to consider radiation of that metastasis lesion in T12. When we had already seen with a repeat MRI that it, there was no growth, and in fact, there was signs of sclerosis there and healing effect. I was in line with accepting his request, but our radiation oncology team was adamant about a randomized trial, which the patient did not want to participate. So he decided to hold his treatment about a year after initiation and see what would happen. This is the interesting part, and you can already see it. The PSA remains completely undetectable. And from here on, you can already see that his testosterone is starting to rise around here. And this is just as a timing as the pandemic is coming. So here you see the timing of what happens. In April of 2020, as MD Anderson is essentially getting ready to shut down, he calls, we discuss that his PSA remains at 0.1 with a normal testosterone. I do not think, even I, who I'm like so geeky and nerdy about repeating imaging, and given that he was in such a good performance status and with a normal PSA, I'm sorry, testosterone and no PSA production, I was not even worried putting him through another PET or another imaging. I was just trying to get clinical information. He calls me and says he has a lower back pain. That's a three out of 10. And I can't bring him in the clinic, but we do agree to have an MRI spine. And that was done because we were under the pressure of like, oh my God, we're all shutting down. We're not going to be able to meet each other. Let's just do it and be sure. Sure enough, there's imaging signs of cord compression at T12. We reinitiate Degorelis, give him a little bit of dexamethasone, and radiate from T9 to L2. This is now the interesting part. The patient starts experiencing progressive clinically decline. When I say progressive, I mean rapidly progressive. Within 20 days, his performance status goes from zero to two with being fatigued, short of breath, loss of weight, no appetite, fully deconditioned. We're worried about COVID. We knew nothing at that time. We worried about cardiovascular issues. All of it had been excluded. And in the meantime, he actually again pays out of pocket to go to a facility outside Anderson at that point to have a PET PSMA gallium, which showed, even though at anatomic imaging we had no findings, that there were multiple positive bone metastases and some lesions that were identified by the radiologist just a month after the previous scan 
changing that were found in the lung that were suspicious, very small, but not PSMA avid, suggesting a heterogeneity in the disease. And of course, the next thing I do is like, okay, now this is not prostate cancer anymore. Let's do a brain scan. And the report was released a day after. And he's the patient who calls me while I'm trying to call him, not even pulled up the imaging yet, and tells me, I'm seeing this, is it true? And there were three suspicious enhancing lesions in the brain parenchyma. At that point in time, of course, again, putting in, in perspective that it was pandemic, full lockdown, we're meeting via Zoom like we're doing still today. And he mentions to me that he is seeing, we are now in June, that he's seeing some skin lesions, bumps as he described them in his forehead. I'm like, I'll, you'll have to come in. And I bring him in and it, it was lesions that were very, I'm sorry, I don't have a picture. Somehow it got lost. Very similar to the deposits that we see melanoma. Remember this man had a melanoma history. Now, let me tell you that in all of this story from day one meeting with him, I had been asking for germline testing. When I first met him, it was not in the guidelines. When it was in the guidelines, there was delay in genetics because you needed first a genetic counseling. Thankfully, this has changed now and you can order the testing and then follow with the genetic counseling. But I was able to get a biopsy of that lesion. Well, in the meantime, I had sent a liquid biopsy out. We were trying to parallel process to understand better what was happening. Pathologists confirmed that this was compatible with prostatic carcinoma. I think that a lot of us at that point start thinking, well, maybe this is not prostate cancer. Maybe we missed a recurrence of his melanoma. It is very, very unusual. And also, as you see, this pathology that came quite later suggested that there is loss of MLH1 and PMS2, suggesting we may get a break. In the meantime, liquid biopsy reports, and you see we had several hits. We had the POB2, we had a P10 loss, and we had the coveted MSI high. We're going to get back to his story and then take a little pause to go over the data that we have uh, seen to date. So Sorry, it's just uh, going over this. Sorry, it's repeating itself somehow. Okay. Okay. So these are the potential systemic therapies that Bob would have at that time. The first one that you would say is like, let's go for chemo. But in the meantime, we were able in that three weeks that we were waiting for him to recover from radiation to collect enough of data to make him a candidate for a laparate. Let's talk a little bit about PARP inhibition that has taken so long to come into the clinic. In 1997, we have the first evidence of a genetic predisposition of, to prostate cancer. By 2000, our world is going wild looking at BRCA1, 2 families with breast and ovarian cancer. I actually did my PhD on that. And I remember that in almost all families, there was a mention of a prostate cancer. It took 15 years to get the first feasibility of a multi-institutional molecular characterization from then that actually unveiled that there were somatic events in about 25% of these tumors. And it took a couple of years later to also report that germline pathogenic DDR events in metastatic prostate cancer are found in 11 to 12% of our patients. Hence bringing the guidelines to suggest that you don't even take a family history. Well, you take it, but you don't depend on it to decide. You just depend on whether your patient comes in with metastatic disease or even high-risk localized disease. The profound study came in 2019, proving the point prospectively now that when using an appropriate companion diagnostic, you can actually treat these men pre-chemotherapy with agents such as a laparib in this case, that can not 
only improve the radiographic progression-free survival, but also improve survival. And then came the approval. So just taking a little bit step back and looking at what we want from a study to make us really confident in the outcomes, it needs to address unmet needs. It needs to compare experimental arms to standards. It needs positive outcomes. We want also reproducibility. And more importantly, it needs to be accessible as a product, as a drug, as a therapy to the community. So the overall need in DDR Latin tumors or germline patients is the fact that we have a pretty bleak outcome. But the question when we were developing PARP inhibitors for prostate cancer was, well, is it true that that event is actually linked to progression? Because we know that BRCAs are a causal event of cancer. We didn't know for prostate cancer where it's actually linked to progression, where there is a nodal event to progression. It's in the presence of other events. And that is still up in the air because other events may counteract the efficacy of targeting DDRs. But for now, what we know is that we have patients who are, have very poor prognosis if they harbor germline events. We also know that in prostate cancer, and these were reports that were from 2019, germline and somatic mutations are equally common. And biallelic loss occurs at the same frequency. And this frequency with monoallelic, and this frequency is higher than in breast and ovarian cancer. We also knew already, but it was retrospective data, that you don't even need biallelic loss to target. You need to pick up even a monoallelic loss. Now, all of this, of course, was looked prospectively at by profound study. And in fact, one of the big parts of the study is that it was for the first time a study that was feasible in not just pick up real time, a liquid assay or the like, but it actually took archival tissue. And it proved the point that if found in the archival tissue, that is good enough and is a go for the use of PARP inhibitors. Now, we all know that we are just at the tip of the, uh, the iceberg in understanding the role of genetics and molecular biomarker testing, and it's an ongoing process. And of course, we are still all of us aware that in a lot of the practices, germline testing does not occur as it should. And even though we have very clear recommendations, and of course, in each country, they differ a little bit. But let's look briefly at the design of this specific study that I think was the first introduction of precision therapy for prostate cancer. The study was clear. It was comparing the use of Olaparib in men who harbored DDR events in a two-to-one randomization schema versus the use of an alternate androgen signaling inhibitor. So if the man had received abiraterone, he was given enzalutamide or the inverse. And a lot of people went on to criticize later and say, huh, well, you know, we knew that wouldn't work. Well, I would say that even to this day, it is very common to practice. And that was what it was compared against because carboplatin or platinum is not common practice, for instance. And of course, positive outcomes that are clinically meaningful. I, see, I think that the use of Olaparib in these men proved the point. Number one, yes, there is a meaningful difference because these patients have a grim outcome. Two, switching from abiraterone to enzalutamide or enzalutamide to abiraterone and so forth is like treating with placebo. Three, treating earlier is better than treating later because we know that a lot of these men who are on the, what I call placebo arm, were crossed over, yet still, we got it, and I'm gonna go to the next slide for that, sorry. Uh, here we go. We got an overall survival benefit, even though it could have been lost if it didn't matter when you treated the patients. Now, I passed over quickly the other slides that really showcase that BRCA2 was where a lot of this trial was weighed on, 
And there's a lot of controversy that we can talk about in a minute, whether we should treat beyond bracket two and one. And I think that Fred next week is gonna tell us much, much more than that. We're all expecting it. Uh, but also we learned and understood that even though our patients are more vulnerable, if treated correctly and monitored correctly, this is a tolerable agent. So what about lutetium PSMA? Well, not approved yet, right? Because then I might have been nudged to give some to Bob. But what we know about lutetium PSMA is that it is a targeted agent. It is the basics, the foundational principle of theranostics because now you have as your biomarker an imaging technology that is probably much easier than sequencing, right? And sometimes much easier than immunohistochemistry, dare I say. And of course, this trial that was reported last year compared the addition of lutetium PSMA versus on, with standard of care versus standard of care alone, not allowing obviously the combination with chemotherapy. In this case, men were chemo treated, which was not the case for my patient. The trial, as we know, was positive and it was not just positive by a very significant margin that is clinically significant for overall survival, but it actually showed some very good quality of life data, setting the bar pretty high. So what about reproducibility for these new agents? Uh, a lapper of not so new anymore, but still the access problem. Reproducibility is something that we need to wait for. We need to listen to more trials. There's gonna be one more trial presented next week with a different PARP inhibitor, hopefully supporting similar data. What about practices accessible to the community? Well, that's a big problem. It's very hard to make it system-wide that patients undergo germline testing and tissue tasting. I was today with my new clinic that, you know, when you're starting something new, it's so difficult. And we realized with my nurse and my MA that we spent 50% of our time dealing with bureaucracy or more. Rather than, and, and then about 20% speaking to a patient, explaining the bureaucracy. So the burden that this has added needs to be overcome in some fashion because it is unbearable. And of course, I think a big part of, of this transition is going to be educational, understanding better the science, getting the time to follow the data and understand how to use best these agents. But I think that this is not the problem. The bureaucratic issue is the problem. The administrative burden is the problem. The reimbursement is also the problem. And the right, of course, timing of the agent might be the issue. So how about precision drug development? Well, I think that profound trial and potentially vision trial really helped us understand that there is ability for precision drug development in prostate cancer, as we did when we started with abiraterone, where it was the first introduction of an enhanced antigen signaling inhibitor that led to a slew of trials that were all positive. I expect a lot of precision-driven trials to be reported very soon and more and more engagement in that field. But we need to also look at the other side of things, right? We need to keep in mind sorry, there we go, the patient. So for Bob, obviously you're thinking, well, you're talking about PARP inhibitors, you're talking about lutetium, that was not there, but you went for Pembro, right? Yeah, we went for Pembro, that's what we did, obviously. And we had this magical event of everything disappearing within three infusions and this man going back to his life, which is so gratifying, right? Uh, I did not mention earlier, because this is not a tool that is used by a lot of us, that I had actually assessed circulating tumor cells on this man, which were undetectable previously. But you can see that they really rose extremely rapidly during that event of progression. He went to undetectable circulating tumor cells within two infusions of PEMPRO just as a side story, and complete remission to the point of the stereotactic gamma knife team saying, well, there's nothing to radiate right now, just monitor him. But here's a problem. He started developing when we went to that six week regimen, the double up of Pembro that we adopted during COVID, 
coming from Europe indication, he developed an initial stomatitis. So I had to hold his treatment. He was doing very well. When I decided to leave MD Anderson, uh, the patient was followed by a different practice and they reinitiated. The problem was there though, that because he was also a person who was very fleeting, he'd like to go be away, not visit with his doctors often. You'd have to follow him on the phone. An immunotherapy related gastritis developed that was not caught early enough. It was caught at the point that the patient had lost 40 pounds and he had deteriorated to a performance status of three. It essentially broke my heart because I reached out to him at the end of the year and he was being hospitalized with no progression from the prostate cancer, but complete deterioration as a result of the immunotherapy. Suggesting something that I learned very early during my fellowship, it doesn't do you any good to have a patient in complete remission if they actually die of another cause that might be associated with what you're doing to them. And, and I think it, this is an event that is very heartbreaking for all of us. Um, and it is a very humbling event. So our goal should always be also maximize the therapeutic index and dose our therapeutic strategy towards the most efficacious and least toxic for the specific patient. And with that in mind, we don't just look into the future, but we look back to the principles of medicine that were we were taught by, by people like Dr. Huggins and others, uh, our teachers in medical school potentially. And we need to be precise towards both the host and the tumor. Technology should provide access to these resources, should serve the resource, should serve the patient and us. And we should not serve technology, right? And the deliverable should be that therapeutic index improvement. And eventually, uh, you know, Fred knows that's my vision. We should see healthcare as a care of health rather than a care for disease. So I will stop here and give it back to our chair and, and, and listen to his wisdom on these, on these presentations. So that, that was, that was great. And it was, it was really nice to see, uh, you know, it obviously comes from the heart. So I know you very well, Eleni, and I, I sense the, 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 the pain in seeing this patient, uh, uh go down, unfortunately. And that you know that's that's so true i mean you you can suffer from the disease but you can also suffer from our treatments and uh, and, and and the balancing act is not always that easy so um you know uh so anybody in the audience who has questions if you can type them in but obviously i have several that i i'd like to just tackle to bring some of this this home so uh maybe just getting you know your insight you know we're seeing a lot of this earlier treatment um uh, and more intense treatment. So how would you manage now a patient who comes in now with metastatic hormone sensitive disease? I mean, are you convinced of triplet and, and, and the local treatment? I mean, are you convinced we should hit them with everything we have or sequence or are there patient profiles that you would go with? the kitchen sink and others that you would go with the sequence. I mean, help our, our listeners out there because there's a lot of stuff going on. So you're a hundred percent right. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on this too. Uh, obviously trying to do the right thing by the patient might push you to overdo it. And we are, can all be accused of that. Uh, and sometimes trying to protect them and just going by the book might actually under treat them. So what is the sweet spot? Now there were data that was presented as we all know, and we discussed in another session a few months ago about the triplet when it comes from the PEACE-1 study where we compared indirectly using ADT plus docetaxel versus using ADT plus docetaxel plus abiraterone. And the data showed clear benefit in a radiographic progression-free survival across the board. But since it's early analysis, we got positive data for high volume disease, but we got no difference in overall survival because very few events have thankfully occurred. 
The caveat in that study, I think we would all agree, is that it was not clearly designed as such. It was more standard of care plus minus aberadron at a time where aberadron had not been, I should say, enhanced androgen signal inhibition had not been added as a standard of care. When I, I was asked to do the discussion of that trial, I was super positive about the introduction of any agent to androgen deprivation. My main concern being driven by the fact that I still see a lot of patients coming for second opinion who out of fear or out of lack of time or out of lack of knowledge have not been exposed to a combination with whatever. The meta-analysis show you want to go for chemo, go for chemo. You want to go for abiraterone, for enzalutamide, for apalutamide, go for it. Will next week settle the score is going to be the question. I think we all remember what charted came. We waited for Stampede. We had the jet tube negative. Next week is going to be about aerosins, right? Docetaxel plus ADT versus ADT plus docetaxel plus darolutamide. So where do we stand? They, I think they've pre-reported potentially as positive as well, and we'll see the magnitude of the event. But here's the question. Does docetaxel make a difference anymore? Because I, I wanted to hear your views. As I see it, we have one missing link. So if I had an ADT plus abiraterone versus ADT plus abiraterone plus docetaxel, would that make the difference? So for low volume, no. For the man I was discussing earlier, before we joined, I told the man I had in clinic today, we had a video call. I said, listen, we need more time. We need an hour here. Let's get on the call with your wife at around six o'clock. So we were literally an hour talking about it. Gleason, nine disease, and um, looking like an intermediate risk with a baseline PSMA that was not positive in the notes, with disease that seemed to be only one centimeter pathologically in the prostate, an extensive lymph node infiltration with cribriform across 10 lymph nodes, and a PSA that was low from baseline. What do you do with these men? And I saw him, he was sent by, 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 by surgeons two months after with a 0.5 PSA. Within two weeks, it's one. So this is the concern. Do I hit that patient with everyone, everything? Do I wait for his sequencing? What would you do? I mean, you see these patients every day. Yeah, yeah. Those are the those are the patients that I, that I really think chemotherapy might make a difference. I mean, um, you know, as much as I was also trying to limit toxicity, I think, like you said, sometimes we miss windows of opportunity where it's the lowest amount of hormone independent or ADT independent clones. And if you can hit them early, so, so, you know, I agree with you. I think the patients that are, have the high volume, high risk, uh, really aggressive disease need as much as we can give them. But I'm starting to be more and more convinced that even the lower risk patients, if they're well enough, and that's where our judgment comes in to get the chemotherapy, we might actually cure some patients. Uh, and, and, and I think the future might actually be a, you know, a, a kind of contract. Let's treat you really aggressively. And maybe after two or three years, we might be able to stop everything. We might actually de-intensify over time rather than keep them on the standard ADT and uh, an ARPI for life, which is the standard, I think, you know, where we need to go is. So there are a lot of questions coming in now. And so, so very, very quickly, because we're, you know, the patient with your brain mets, the question is, do you suspect small cell transformation? Uh, you know, absolutely. obviously. Uh, he, and he was not yeah. found. Absolutely. I saw a similar patient the other day and I initiated on him 15 years after 15 years after initial radical prostatectomy, PSA up to one, they were doing PSMA pets and looking just at the pet and not the anatomic part. He was liver meds, bone meds that were lytic. Of course, he. I, I managed to get him on 
Cisplatin etoposide plus atezolizumab going by small cell lung cancer profiling. Absolutely, you, you expect it. This specific gentleman did not have it, but others will. Yeah, I think that's a, an important message for, for our colleagues, not only urologists, but the whole field that is obsessed with following PSA and thinking everything is honky-dory. I mean, I really, really, when patients come in and they say, oh, my PSA is below 10, I'm not too concerned with my Gleason 9 or 10 disease, I just say, oh my God, I'm I'm more I'm a lot more concerned because it, it, it's going to be that that kind of. Uh, I, a, I love a it when you agree, because yeah. I actually tell them that I tell them I wish it was a hundred. I then they look at yeah, me and they're like, exactly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and we get that every week. These kind of patients that are, yeah, and and for you know the question of denosumab and, and bone health in general. You know, the indication is in castration resistant. Are there any patients that are hormone sensitive that you think would need a bone health? I mean, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still very conservative. So you're more, you're more but... there. And today I was, I was talking to a patient who came for a third opinion, right? Um, because he wants to do exactly what you said, stop the hormones. He actually went out of his way to leave one place, go ask if a single lesion should be uh, radiated. The moment they started him, interestingly, on very nicely, 56-year-old guy, very good uh, muscle mass. He had his baseline bone density. And I'm like, I'm sure it was fine. And I look at the report, and the guy is osteopenic, which is either he was very low in vitamin D, I checked, he was not, or he had some genetic predisposition. So you can be fooled. And, and I truly believe that it's good to look. I never did it with those 50 year olds, but now I'm, I'm, I'm second guessing myself. And you might want to introduce the 60 MIGs every six months if you are concerned about these events. But otherwise I try to defer it. At least, you know, I see still a lot in the US of that months in the metastatic hormone naive. And of course, osteonecrosis is happening after a few years. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think considering, I mean, for, for sure, the metastatic CRPC earlier, I think is better. I'm still out yeah. in the medicine, in the, the, the hormone sensitive, I'm still conservative, but early when they become castration resistant. Um, so yeah. maybe just a question on, on germline testing, because you, you were talking about, so if you have a HRD monolithic loss in the gene, can you assume that it's biallelic inactivation? Um, you know, the tumor it's almost always present uh you know is it necessary is it you have to do testing or can is that enough for you to to go ahead and treat for them? me for me for my treatment based on that data that i suggested it and i think based on the assay used in profile we would agree that we should not insist on biallelic of course, with careful monitoring, especially for BRCA2 and 1. I'm more concerned about presence of other events, so I don't agree with these assays that only look at DDR. You want to look at MIG amplification. You want to do other events because we're getting data that suggests that there are events that confer to resistance, right? And that's going to be the future. Right. And, and, and in terms of combining with PARP inhibitors, are you... You think that there's a future there, PARP and checkpoint, or well, you, you uh, tell us, sir. Part. You tell us. <laughs> well, well, you're the, uh, you're the master there. Uh, well, hopefully, we'll, we'll convince at least uh, as many people as possible that maybe for early MCRPC, we might not even need to test uh, with the with what I'll show next week. That you're just going to show that, up on that true. stage and, and tell us what yeah. we're going to do, and we'll yeah. do, just yeah, do that. And I'm sure it, it. Yeah. Well, we'll we'll will hopefully uh, uh, convince people that maybe we've got some combination for the first time. I mean, there's there's not much in terms of combination. We work together on on several studies, and it's always been a hard. Uh, in MCRPC, do you go beyond ten or twelve cycles? Do you rechallenge, or what's your? This is a question that came in. I mean, what's the place of rechallenging in patients who respond well to docetaxel? This was an old question while we, I was training, and. Uh... I don't believe in rechallenging with docetaxel if you've exhausted your response. However, I do believe in that. I think it was presented years ago by Kurt Miller. Do you remember that Prince trial 
where you were giving the four cycles and the patient had an amazing response and you could give them a break. I do apply that. And I apply that a lot on cabacitaxel as well. And it's worked well for some patients. They keep being very sensitive to the agent, gives them better quality of life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I, I agree. And I try to change mechanisms of action. That's what we put in the guidelines. But I do keep docetaxel as a last resort if they've responded well, you know, four lines or five lines ago. Exactly. So look, where, exactly. Where, where are you? Mm -hmm. Go ahead, sorry. No, no, I was going to say today I saw a patient who had received 32 cycles. And I just was looking at him. I'm like, you should have a special, I don't know, medal as a person who has sustained most chemotherapy and prostate cancer in, in the, in, in our world. It just, and he was, he had truly believed that, you know, that's how it should be. 32 is, is way out of line. I think it's just. Yeah. But, but before we had anything else besides dose tax so my record was 56 cycles, but it was always 10 sure, but... repeated cycles. We had nothing else, but not never in a row. I never went beyond. I never go beyond. Never 10 in cycles. a row, right? Stop, restart, exactly. try. 32 back to back since 2019. Okay, well, this was great, Eleni. I really enjoyed it. And, um, and uh, you know, we ran out of time because this was a great, uh, great discussion. And, uh, and hopefully we'll see you again uh, in person in the near future at uh, one of our meetings. And uh, see you well, next week in San Francisco. You. See you next week. Thank and you. I'm Thank looking you. forward to, to listening to you. Thank you so much. Thanks. And so uh, to all the audience, if you can just uh, send uh, in your evaluation form um, and uh, complete your feedback. And thank you very much for your attention for tonight. And on behalf of CUA, we'll look forward to the next webinar.